Father in heaven, we pray for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you sent us Smiley Construction yesterday to help us out uh, in our time of crisis. It, it's evidence of how you provide for your people, and we thank you for that. And we pray a blessing on them for their goodness to us. And now, Lord, as we turn to your word today, we pray that uh, your spirit will lead us and teach us, and our hearts, our hearts will be on fire for the reality about Jesus that comes out in this. In Jesus' name, amen. So those of you who keep track of uh, the, the Christian calendar, which is, it, we're kind of as Adventists, we tend to be a little bit out of the Christian calendar. A couple of reasons for that. One is often it's Sunday-centered, and we're here on Saturdays, and, and, and so we're, we're a little out of step with a lot of things. But for those of you paying attention and know about it, you know that tomorrow is Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is one week before Easter Sunday. And Palm Sunday is about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. So I thought today we would reflect on that story, and we would reflect on that story in this context as the day they almost got it right. So many times they get it wrong, and ultimately they get it totally wrong, but that day they almost got it right. So today is going to be, uh, in some ways, more of, a, more of a Bible study than we might normally do. So I want to encourage you, grab one of those Bibles in front of you and be ready to whip around in there because we're going to go a few places. We're going to read this story of this triumphal entry and we're going to connect it with words spoken that day that are literally from the Old Testament in the context of those words. And then hopefully, Lord willing, we'll bring it all together and, uh, and there'll be conviction in our hearts about what God wants us to do now. So, let's jump into this. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 21. So, if you've got a Bible there, Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. And we read these words. Now when they, that's Jesus, the disciples, and whoever else was traveling with Jesus, there were some women and some others. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem... And came to Bethphage on to, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Now, just some geographic context here. You have Jerusalem proper here, and, and here is the Mount of Olives just off to the side. And, and if you're kind of over the crest of the hill, you come over the Mount of Olives, and the view of Jerusalem opens up in front of you. And in those days, it would have been the temple, and it would have been an amazing view. And Jesus is just coming up. He's not yet over the hill. And this is the area of Bethany and Bethphage and all of these, these little towns. And he sends the disciples into the town. He says, you're going to find a donkey with a colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Matthew here is connecting this experience that he went through as a disciple with an Old Testament passage and saying this was a fulfillment of this passage. Well, where does this, 
Where does this prophecy come from? The prophecy that he's quoting actually comes from the book of Zechariah. And we're going to go to Zechariah, so if you need a minute to find it, go ahead and start looking. It's uh, the next to last book in the Old Testament. So the prophecy of Zechariah is where he gets this from. And this prophecy, as I read it to you, it will make sense to you how some of their notions in their mind were pretty hostile towards Gentiles and how surprising it would ultimately be later on when, when they would discover this thing Paul calls the mystery kept hidden that the Gentiles are included in the covenant. So you're going to see some of that in this verse and in this prophecy. So we're in Zechariah chapter 9. Now let's place Zechariah in time. Zechariah is a prophet after Israel has, well, after Judah, Israel's been destroyed, but after Judah returns from Babylon and reestablishes the temple, Zechariah is one of the prophets during that time. So Zechariah chapter 9, verse 1, and we're going we're gonna to read several verses here to give us the context of what Matthew was quoting. So verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach. And Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. Now, this is an interesting passage because the reading on it is a little bit unclear. And you, could, you might get different translations that would translate it slightly differently. There's one way to translate it that sounds a bit gracious towards Gentiles. There's another way to translate it that's a little more negative. And I think the context implies... It's negative. When it says God has his eye on the nations, he has his eye on the Gentiles in a negative way, but he has his eye on Israel in a positive way. And, and this is all in the context of, of, of Judah having been conquered by Babylon, and the nations are the danger and the evil. And so this is the God of justice with his eye on, on the enemies of Israel and his eye on Israel to help them. So, for the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strip down her power on the sea and she will be devoured by fire. This will ultimately take place uh, in the days of Alexander the Great. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. Now, those names, those cities that I've named, if you're a student of, uh, of Old Testament stories... From the time of David, these are the chief cities of the Philistines. So Zechariah is reaching way back in history and creating a context in our mind of the story of the Philistines and the story of David. And he mentions Ashkelon and Gaza and Ekron. Uh, he, he leaves out Gath, but that's about the only one of the ones he doesn't name. So he's naming all the key cities of, of Philistine. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. Now, 
the Bible's cleaning, your translation likely is cleaning that phrase up a little bit, a mixed people. What it's really saying there is a collection of illegitimate children. We'll use that term here. And, and what he's saying by this is Philistia, the land that used to be so great, that used to torment Israel, will be so destroyed that, that even their families will no longer be that singularity of the line of the Philistines. It, they will be overrun and destroyed. Now verse 7, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. This is an interesting reference. This is a dietary reference. You remember that in Israel, that they were told that the life is in the blood. You must not eat the blood. So when they ate, uh, whenever they ate flesh, they, they would cut the throat and then drain the blood, and then they ate the animals. Whereas some of the, animals, some of the other kingdoms around them had other traditions where they actually ate blood and things like this. And so this is referred to take away the, the blood from his mouth and its abominations from between his teeth. Another interesting point here is these are issues brought up in the Jerusalem Council. Do you remember when the Jerusalem Council meets in Acts 15 and they say, yeah, I think Gentiles are allowed in, but there's a couple things we want you to avoid. Avoid blood. Avoid things that are strangled. It's this same concept here. So, so what he's saying is the abominable acts of these people, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth, it too shall be a remnant for our God. This is an interesting phrase, and I'm going to come back to it in a second. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Okay, the Jebusites were the peoples who had, had lived in the region before Israel came in originally, and the Jebusites built the original city of Jerusalem. And it wasn't until the time of David that they were actually driven out of that city, but the Jebusites remained in the land of Israel throughout that time, living in other places. Now, if you were a Jew in the days of Jesus reading this, the most likely reading you would have for this prophecy, where it says, the land of the Philistines, it too shall be a remnant for our God, it shall be like a clan of Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites, you would probably read that to say the land of the Philistines is going to become Judah's possession and that Ekron, the city of the Philistines, is going to be dispossessed like we drove out the Jebusites and it's going to become part of Israel. You would likely have read this in a sense that made you think God is against the Gentiles and he will destroy them. But there's actually another way to look at it. In one sense, you could also read this to say these Gentiles, these illegitimate children, I will one day consider as a remnant like Judah. Now, you wouldn't have read it that way. I wouldn't have read it that way. But it's amazing how things can change as God reveals more of his purpose. And this, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites, we would want to read it to say they'll be driven out, but the truth is, no, the Jebusites dwell among us. Verse 8, 
Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. If you were a Jew in the time of Jesus, and you know the story that some 500, 600 years ago, Judah was conquered, the temple was destroyed, the people were taken to Babylon, now they've come back. If you were to read this passage in the context of the book of Ezekiel, where the throne of God is described as, as this cart with, with uh, cherubim on the four corners and wheels and the whole thing, that suddenly now God is everywhere, and you read this and it said, I will encamp at my house as a guard, you would read it and think, oh, God's going to move back to Jerusalem and be in the temple again. So that none shall march to and fro, no oppressor shall again march over them. And you would hear that and say, this temple will never be destroyed again, for now I see with my own eyes. Okay, you're going to get an interesting twist on this verse as we go forward. Then we get to the part that Matthew actually quotes. Verse 9. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that much to us. But there was great significance at the time in the manner in which a conquering king entered a city. There were two ways he could come in. He could come in as a mighty conqueror on a horse, or he could come in humbly on a donkey. If he came in on a horse, it meant that the city would be put to the sword. If he came in on a donkey, it meant that he came to grant peace and safety to the people. And so this is a hugely significant statement here going on. And so if you had been a Jew in those days and you're reading Zechariah 9, ah, the king, the Messiah is going to come to us riding on a donkey because he intends peace for Israel. And here comes Jesus. Riding on a donkey. Go into the town and get me a donkey. And if they ask about it, say that the Lord needs it. And here he comes, riding on a donkey. This should have been a clue to Jesus' purpose. And it should also be a clue to another description of the arrival of Jesus that we have. Only this one is in Revelation chapter 19. Keep your finger in Zechariah because we're going to come back there. But if you go to Revelation chapter 19, you're going to get a different picture of Jesus coming in a different way. Revelation 19 verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This is Jesus. This is Jesus coming this time 
on a white horse. Now, if we go back to Zechariah from here, we can see that, yes, the Jews expected a Messiah to come in peace to Jerusalem, but at the same time, they were expecting a Messiah to come in the manner of the Revelation 19 Messiah as it relates to the Gentiles. See, they had a conquering king coming in peace to Jerusalem, but coming in violence to the Gentiles. And if you read on, you'll get the sense of this. Zechariah 9, verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. Okay, that might throw you slightly, but you're thinking, wait, no. Peace because he conquered, right? His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, this is a reference to David and a reference to the kingdom of David because David's kingdom was from sea to sea. When it says that, it means from the Dead Sea, what we would call the Dead Sea, to the Mediterranean Sea. That was the width of the land. And then it says, uh, and from the river to the ends of the earth. The river in this language is the Euphrates. The region of Damascus, the region of the Arameans, the area from which the Assyrians came. So this kingdom is going to be the width from sea to sea and from the river, but then he opens it up to the ends of the earth. So this idea that, that this kingdom of David would be reestablished and become even greater than it was and then verse 11, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now you would read that. I would read that. And what it would say to me is the promise of victory and deliverance defined in the context of the kingdom of David, and maybe there's even a hint here that there's going to be resurrection because they will be rescued, the prisoners rescued from the waterless pit. Now let me tell you, if you were a zealot, like Simon, one of the apostles, oh, you would have loved this passage. These would have been words you hung on to. And then this too, verse 12, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. So I would have read this to say that God's purpose when the messianic king comes is to lay hold of all of those who are Israel, who are believers, and they will be used as a sword to destroy the Gentiles. That's what I would have read. But how's this for irony? No one knew on that day when Jesus rode into town on a donkey that within 20 years, a man currently called Saul, who would later be called Paul, who didn't believe in Jesus would literally be in Greece 
spreading the kingdom of God, but not with a sword. It's crazy, isn't it? But back to the story. Matthew 21, verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. That's why it's Palm Sunday. And the crowds that went before him that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now these words that everyone is shouting are also a quote. This time it comes from Psalm 118. And maybe in your mind you think Psalm 118 is only famous because it's before Psalm 119, which is the longest, the longest chapter in the Bible. But no, you actually know Psalm 118 way better than you think you do. And this is the quoted part, Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. And if you go to your Old Testament and you read this, you'll read, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, you, you read that and you can say, well, I see some overlap here, but why are they saying Hosanna? But when I go back and look at Psalm 118, it says, save us, we pray. Well, okay, here's an interesting thing about Bible translation. So you have the Old Testament written in Hebrew and Aramaic. And then you have the New Testament written in Greek. And ironically, when the when the interpreters interpret the Old Testament, they take all of the Hebrew and Aramaic words and turn them into English or whatever language. But when they interpret the New Testament, they interpret all the Greek words, but sometimes they leave the Aramaic words in Aramaic. So what's going on here is Hosanna literally means save us, we pray. So if you go to a Hebrew Bible and you read Psalm 118, Psalm 118 verse 25 will say Hosanna. But it's not translated that way in your Bible because that's Old Testament and we're translating the whole thing. So, so this is literally, they're literally quoting Psalm 118. Hosanna, save us, we pray, O Lord. Now understand, in Psalm 118, the O Lord is save us, Yahweh. But to Jesus, if you noticed, they said, Hosanna to the son of David. Save us, son of David. And they have put son of David in the place of Yahweh. All right, let's keep going here. This is connecting Jesus to the concept of the Davidic kingdom. Son of David. And so this takes us back to Zechariah 9, verse 10. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. They're saying, save us, Messiah, son of David, who has come to establish what Zechariah said, the kingdom that goes from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, these are loaded words. Now, just a side note here on Psalm 118. I told you you know this passage better than you think you do. Psalm 118 is not like the 23rd Psalm where you know the whole thing or, or 46 or 91 or something like that. 
But what you know from Psalm 118 is a bunch of one-liners. Any of these familiar? This is, these are all from Psalm 118. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. You heard that one-liner? Here's another one. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Or this one. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Or this one. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Or this one. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Every one of those is in Psalm 118. But we tend to know them just as, as one-liners. So you can imagine the crowd quoting from this psalm from people that know the whole thing. They know all the one-liners in there. And the people are shouting this at Jesus as he comes through the streets. This is the brink of a revolution. It's a rather loaded psalm to be quoting as Jesus rides by on a donkey. By the way, there was another king that entered Jerusalem on a donkey. Do you know who that was? It was Solomon. When David appointed Solomon king because there was another one of his sons that was trying to appoint himself, David said, get my donkey, take it down, anoint Solomon, and have him ride into town on a donkey. Now here comes Jesus on the donkey, just like Solomon, the son of David. It's pretty intense, isn't it? Let's go on. Psalm, uh, Matthew 21, verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? You're starting to understand why, right? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Okay, so what happens next? Verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now again, as I mentioned before, recall the prophecy of Zechariah, where behold your king comes humble on a donkey. Just before he says those words, he says this, Zechariah 9, verse 8, then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro, no oppressor, oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Now read that verse in the context of Jesus. It reads completely differently, doesn't it? Before the idea here was that Yahweh's going to come back to the temple and and he's on our side because we're the righteous ones, and he's going to make sure no other army ever conquers our city. But instead, what happens is Jesus walks into the temple, and he looks at the abomination they have made of it, and he guards his house by overturning the tables. And throwing out everyone that's trampling God's purpose underfoot. He fulfills the prophecy. But it's not what they expected. And in this context, Jesus adds his own quote. This time, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 56. 
And with this quote, if we're paying attention, we will see how Jesus is hinting at how things are about to open up. The return of the glory of God to the temple is not a closing in around the people of Israel. Instead, it is about to become an opening up to the people of the world. But nobody sees this yet. To get this, we've got to read this, the whole section here in Isaiah 56. So if you go to Isaiah 56, here's what it says. Thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Now you probably would have read that very differently before this event in the temple. But what Jesus discovers in the temple is not righteousness and it's not justice. And so Jesus' salvation and righteousness is being revealed in the overthrowing of the things that are set against God's people. And in one week, his ultimate righteousness and salvation will be revealed. Verse 2, blessed is the man who does this, who keeps justice and does righteousness. And the son of man who holds it fast. Interesting, the son of man phrase. Jesus lays hold of that as an identity for himself. And in truth, you see as you read this, Jesus is actually the only one who really gets this right. Blessed is the man who does this, the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, who keeps his hand from doing any evil. Now here we go. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And then here, this is for you. And the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For, here it is, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. This is what Jesus quotes. Verse 8, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Now, do you see how you would have read that very differently before Jesus? But now that Jesus comes to the temple, it's beginning to open up. He's cleared it of the things that are, that are defiling because it is to be a house of prayer for all people. And he's beginning to throw open the doors. It's quite startling to see this this passage in the context of what Jesus was doing on that day, cleansing the temple. It's a good example of how often we cannot see what is obvious until it actually comes into reality. If we'd lived before that time, this would have been opaque to us. We would have thought we knew. 
But it was not until later that they understood. And this is why we must always stay humble in the way we hold our convictions. Ready to be corrected when hidden things become revealed. Because if we won't be humble, then we'll be like some people about to come up in the story. Matthew 21, verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, save us, Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. Now again, Jesus is quoting scripture here. This time he's quoting Psalm 8. But you might be surprised when I actually read it to you. Psalm, Psalm chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. This is how it reads. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infant, infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So that's actually interesting. You have established strength is what you'll read in your translation. But Jesus is quoting it as prepared praise. Well, what's going on here? Well, it's actually interesting. What Jesus is quoting is how that verse is rendered in the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Old Testament that had been in existence from about 200 B.C. forward. And, and it was called that because something like 70 scholars had all, uh, the legend was they all did it and they all came up with the exact same translation, which doesn't seem likely. But anyway, that's the story. So it was called the 70, the Septuagint. And this was the Greek version of the Old Testament. And what Jesus is saying aligns with that interpretation. Here's, here's how it reads in the Septuagint. This is from an 1851 translation. O Lord, our Lord, how wonderful is thy name in all the earth, for thy magnificence is exalted above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou perfected praise because of thine enemies, that thou mightest put down the enemy and the avenger. Established strength, perfected praise. It's kind of an interesting to ponder exactly what it was Jesus said, because he was likely speaking Aramaic, but, but how these different things were understood in the time is, is interesting to speculate. But regardless, the point is obvious enough. The little kids understand what's going on, and the Pharisees can't see it. That's the point. And this is why we've got to be humble lest we become the Pharisees. Now, I want to add one more piece to this story. And for that, we have to go to Luke. Because the story of the triumphal entry, it, it appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But there's an element in Luke that I want you to see, and it's Luke chapter 19. And we're going to begin in verse 37. As Jesus was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, so we had the other, he's coming up, the backside, now he's headed down and the city is in view. Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king 
who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. That's such a powerful moment. Now, once again, we have Jesus. Once again, we have the people quoting from Psalm 118, verse 26. But here, in, in the, what's recorded in Luke, we have the Pharisees immediately recognizing what is happening. What's happening here is the crowd is calling Jesus the messianic king. It's happening right now. The crowd has got it right. And the Pharisees see this and they're like, whoa, everybody needs to calm way down. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're scandalized. And they tell Jesus, you've got to shut this crowd up. But Jesus says, if I do, the stones will testify this truth. Now, what's going on here? I think Jesus is making what we would call a biblical illusion. It's not so much that he's quoting a passage, but he's using biblical language, making a biblical illusion. There's a place in the book of Habakkuk, and that might take you a little longer to find, so I'll give you a second on that one. Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk was a prophet who, who prophesied in, in just in the era before the Babylonian captivity. But Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning in verse 2, we find these words. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, I want to pause there for just an aside, because that phrase itself is a very important phrase in the whole of Protestant Christianity. Because it's quoted by Paul, and it was a passage that Martin Luther, the young, devout monk who was trying to be good enough to be accepted by God, doing everything he could to be accepted by God, stumbled on this passage in Corinthians, this quote in Corinthians, that said, the righteous shall live by faith. And that became the foundation of his transformation, of his understanding of how we are saved. This phrase out of Habakkuk. And it is in this context that, that Jesus is laying hold of an illusion. So, so in this Habakkuk chapter 2, the Lord establishes that the prophecies of deliverance will in fact be fulfilled. But the faithful will have to be humble and patient and live by faith in the promises, not confidence in the understandings. Do you see the difference here? You see, I love, I love to understand things. It's like my goal in life, to understand things. And when I understand something, I feel very confident. But what God says to me is, 
yeah, you don't really know enough to understand everything, so you're going to have to trust me. And I'm like, Lord, why can't you just explain it all? And he's like, because you wouldn't get it. So just trust me. The righteous shall live by faith. We won't always get it all. We have to trust. So, so Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 6. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. And then here it is. Here's the illusion. Verse 11. For the stones will cry out from the walls and the beams from the woodwork respond. What this passage means, what this concept is, is that we think we're living our lives and getting away with it, but the stones see us. The walls see us. And all of these lies that we think we've perfectly told, one day they will cry out. And so Jesus is laying hold of this illusion and saying, if if they don't say these words, the stones will, because at least they know what's going on. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is quoting this passage, but rather, I think it's an interesting example of a biblical illusion to make a point. Kind of like we might say, wow, it's raining so hard, the animals are starting to line up in twos. Okay, it's a biblical illusion. The idea here, I think, is that Jesus is saying, this could have been the moment you got it right. Because the reality taking place before your eyes is so obvious and so worthy of praise, the stones themselves see it and know it and would cry out themselves if this crowd didn't. And to support this concept, look what happens next. I, I, I think the concept here is this is their moment. They could have gotten it right here. Verse, verse 41, Luke 19, verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This was the chance. They almost got it right. But they didn't. And this was the turning point. This was the moment when they could have gotten it. And they could have written a completely different future. A future of peace and of love and of safety that comes from faith in the work of Jesus to save us. But they could not see it. And on that day, they chose destruction. So how do we wrap this up? Well, the first thing we do is we invite the band back because if they come back, then I'll have to stop. So 
So that's the first part. But here's the second part. Today is still the day of peace. When Jesus is coming to us, reaching out to us from the back of a donkey, coming in peace to save all who put their faith in Jesus. But there is another day coming. The one described in Revelation chapter 19. The day when Jesus comes in judgment to put an end to all who, like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, refuse the grace given and set themselves against Jesus. For this group, that day when Jesus comes on the horse will be for them as the destruction of Jerusalem that Jesus wept over in Luke 19. So here's the question. Where will you be that day? Will you be at peace with the Jesus on the donkey or at war with the one who comes on the horse? It's up to you. You decide. Habakkuk 2, and the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. The Lord will return. The righteous shall live by faith. You see, Jesus came to make peace. He doesn't want to make war. He wants to make peace. But for the oppressors who will not agree to be at peace, there must finally come an end. And while we might think that end has delayed much too long, it's God's mercy that puts it off. Is he waiting on you? Hebrews 3, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So here it is. Do you need to come to Jesus today? Do you need to be baptized? We've been filling the tank this year. We're going to do it again. We can do it for you. Do you need to join yourself with the others in this place who believe and are awaiting the return of Jesus? Do you hear 